Hi, Coffee and Convo listeners. I'm your host, Liz Bullard, and here's a quick ad before we get into our episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Combos. I'm your host, Liz Bullard, and this is the podcast where I talk with friends, leaders in the community, and just other great conversationalists about politics, wellness, and activism. This episode, I am ecstatic because I think, um, Shannon, you are the first author that I have had on my podcast. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be the first author. (laughs) And for those listening, she is not only an author. Shannon Prince is a lawyer, legal commentator, and her book, which is soon to be released, is Tactics for Racial Justice, Building an Anti-Racist Organization and Community. I am so excited to talk about the book and as well as steps people can take in their lives to Um, fight racism and be an advocate within their community. Because I think that in this day and age, we see such big names like, um, you know, thinking about the John Lewis's and the Martin Luther King's and just we kind of take this word activist and we're like, ooh, is that me? I'm so small. No one knows me. But you can be an activist right in your own backyard. And so I'm very interested to have this conversation. So again, Shannon, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm humbled to be here. Absolutely. And as part of the Coffee and Combo family, I'd like to start off with my question of, are you a coffee or a tea person? So tell me a little bit about that. I am a tea person. And actually, every night before I go to bed, I take a big pot and I fill it with water that I boil and I throw some dried lavender buds in there. And then the next morning, I just sip lavender tea all day long. Oh my goodness. I have to try that. I never even thought about that. I highly recommend. Listen, because lavender is such a calming, relaxing um, herb. So does that kind of reflect you? Are you just kind of like this calm, relaxed person? I am a pretty calm person. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Any other tea recommendations? Do you use any other natural herbs or just kind of like lavender? Lavender is your go-to. I also love mint tea. A good mint tea um, also can be a little bit medicinal. If you have an upset stomach, mint tea will take care of that. Absolutely. You know, I always forget mint, but like mint is like, I'll put mint in my water, especially like with lemon, but to like boil it is good. Like I think I go to, my go-to is ginger. If I'm Mm -hmm. making like a a root base, not like a tea bag, I'll go with ginger, but I always forget mint. (laughs) And so Shannon, Tell us a little bit about your journey. Who are you? And please give an introduction to your wonderful book. Thank you. Well, as you said, I'm a lawyer. I practice civil litigation at a firm called Boy Schiller Flexner. And there I have the privilege of representing the Cherokee Nation in its lawsuit against the opioid industry for causing the opioid epidemic on its reservation. My doctorate is in African and African-American studies, and it comes from Harvard. I went to law school at Yale. And before that, I went to a private college preparatory school in Houston, Texas. So because of being in those sorts of academic spaces, I'm used to being the only person of color in the room very often. And now I practice law, which is a very white profession, Mm -hmm. and especially 
what's called big law, the type of law where you do high stakes, complex civil litigation is a very white profession. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how to make spaces more diverse, more equitable, more inclusive. And I do that in a variety of ways. I have the privilege of serving on the firm diversity council at my job. And then also I recently wrote a book that will be released November 30th, 2021 called Tactics for Racial Justice, Building an Anti-Racist Organization and Community. That book is part of the Giving Voice to Values series published by Rutledge. And the thesis of that series is that it's not about teaching people values. So this book is not about teaching people that racism exists or that it's wrong. It's about giving people tactics and strategies so that they can make concrete change on issues and values. So this is about giving people the tools that they need to make a significant impact on racial justice. I, I love that. And when I was looking at the description of your book, um, I, I highlighted that quote. It's, you know, not a book of anti-racist theory, but anti-racist tactics. And I think that is very critical because I, we kind of, we know what racism is. We know that it, it, it still exists. And I think we've all had this awakening of it's more prevalent than we might have thought it was. And it's like, how do we fix it? I think everyone asks that magic question of like, how do you fix that? And kind of share, not everything, but share with us, like, what are some takeaways? Like, how, why did you think that was important versus theory and focusing on the tactics? Why was that important for you? Well, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I saw, as you said, a lot of people learning about racism and that it exists and that it's very prevalent, but then saying, okay, now what? What do I, as an ordinary person, actually do with this knowledge? And so I think that people need a toolkit. I think of anti-racism as a practice that people can learn just as they learn how to cook a souffle or hit a baseball. Mm -hmm. It's just skills that you acquire as opposed to sentiments that you feel. Mm. I love that. I love that. It, it's something that you learn versus something that you feel. Because I think that takes out the sting, right? So when people use words like privilege or inclusion, sometimes like the air changes. Like people are like, well, I'm not racist or, you know, why do things have to change? And it's really about learning a new skill. It's learning how to be inclusive. And I think when you go about it that way, it takes people off of the defense, right? Because you wouldn't be defensive if you were learning to cook and you didn't know how. You wouldn't be defensive if you were learning to read or write and you didn't know how. You were learning a skill and it allows there to be room to make mistakes because you are growing. Oh, I love the way you put that. It takes the shame out of it. Mm. And I think that this is what people misunderstand about implicit bias as a concept as well. I think that people think that implicit bias is this aggressive idea that's about accusing people of having malicious intent that they aren't aware of. But really implicit bias is just the recognition that people can have good intentions, but because we live in a world where stereotypes are just soaked into the air we breathe, sometimes mm. without malice, we can still do harm. And people of goodwill want the skills to avoid that. So for example, my first week practicing at my law firm, which is a wonderful place, someone said, hi, Shannon, it's nice to meet you. So great to have you. Whose secretary are you? You know? Oh, no. <laughs> 
Now, this person is not a bad person. This person didn't wake up in the morning and say, how can I hurt somebody's feelings? It's just, it was an implicit thing. And so this book is not aimed at telling people that they're bad and thus need to be made good. It's about telling people, let's give you some skills so that that doesn't happen in the future. And I like that reference you made in regards to it's not teaching bad people to be good. Because I've also heard comments or people in discussion struggle with, you have family members who have these biases and people struggle with, but that's a good person, you know? Or when you've seen celebrities use the N word, right? And it's like, well, that's a good person. What do we do with all, you know, all their good works? And it's like, you're learning how to not make poor decisions. You are learning how to be, um, to build that skill of being inclusive. And so I like that, that challenging, that, that main mind frame of good and bad of taking it from that black and white and making it a little bit more broad. Thank you. And actually one thing I talk about in my book is the skills for calling people in instead mm-hmm. of calling them out. So when we invite mm-hmm. people to change, we have yes. to do that in a way that's persuasive. Otherwise we just shut people down and we're not effective. And it may feel good to just drop the mic and have this rant and let it all out. But then what good did you do if you didn't change anything? Mm-hmm. And there are actually psychological techniques to being persuasive about race. So psychology professor Kevin Nadal says, when you're confronting someone, say about a statement they made, say this is your relative who you feel is a good person, but you're Mm -hmm. sitting around the Thanksgiving table and they crack that racist joke. Mm. You use an I statement, not a you statement. It's I feel disappointed that you said that, not you are a racist. That allows people to not feel accused. It's just about inviting them to reflect on their behavior then you address the behavior and not the perpetrator. So you say Mm -hmm. that joke was racist, not you are racist. But then the other thing to remember is don't waste your time. Don't feel that you can change everyone, whether it's a relative or a coworker or a boss. William Lloyd Garrison, who was an abolitionist in the 19th century said, and I'm going to paraphrase this, with reasonable men, I will reason, with humane men, I will plead, but I'm not going to waste my time with tyrants and waste arguments where there's just no fertile ground. There's a proverb that you can't wake up someone who's pretending to be asleep. So with reasonable people, you can reason. So if someone tells you, I don't believe there's racism in policing and they're this left brain, mm-hmm. reasonable person, go to the facts, tell them about how uh, the Washington Post found that unarmed black men are four times more likely than unarmed white men to be shot by the police. If they're humane people, they're animated by emotion, then appeal to their heart. So I might tell the story, which is a true story of how my father one day was in broad daylight walking up the driveway to my grandparents' home, and the police almost arrested him, accusing him of breaking in the home. Mm. And when he said, this is my parents' home, just ring the doorbell and they'll tell you, they said, we're not gonna bother the people who live in this house. And my grandfather just happened to look out the window and see what was going on. And you know, the police didn't, the policeman didn't apologize. And so that's the kind of story you can tell to someone who's humane. But if you see that reason is not going to get through to this person, appealing to the heart is not going to get through to this person, then don't just expend your energy fruitlessly. Mm. Very great concrete steps. 
because I, I think that's also been frustration and conversation about how how do you get everybody to to change over a new leaf? And I think the sad reality is you cannot change everybody. No matter what your intention is, you know, there are some people that are going to believe what they believe, no matter what the fact is, like you said, no matter what the emotion you try to convey. And it can be tiring work. It can be tiring work trying to save someone who does not want to be saved. And so I, I love that. And it, it also kind of gives the person a little bit of grace to say, okay, I've tried this step and I've tried this step. They're not changing. So I need to take a step back so that I'm not getting exhausted. I'm not getting jaded because I think it's easy to get the idea that, well, everybody is racist or everybody doesn't want to change. And, and that's not a helpful mind frame either. Absolutely. And it's about being tactical. First, sometimes people aren't going to change the day you have the conversation. Right, sometimes right. people aren't going to change the year you have the conversation. But if you speak to someone with respect for their humanity, even if not with respect for their perspective, then you treat them in a way that allows them to evolve. And then the other thing to remember is to make change, you don't have to change everyone. Slavery did not end because there was a consensus that it was wrong. We still have Confederate statues mm -hmm. standing to this day. But being tactical is about changing a critical mass so that you can transform mm -hmm. society or your community or your workplace. I, I love that because, especially for me, who's like a feeling person, um, you think like, I want the world to be a better place. I want everybody to treat everybody right. And it's a lofty goal, one. And two, you have some people that are quite fine in their mind frame and do not think that black and brown people need to be in, in certain spaces, that different sexual orientations need to be in different spaces, different genders. And I like how you said it's about getting that consensus. And that might be getting people who are in positions of power to say, okay, this is important. This is what we need to make as a mission because that's where we're going to see change. And so I love that because again, it, it's a lot of work and it can be draining. And so it's thinking about where is the best place to disperse your energy so that you're making change and you're not getting exhausted in this fight of activism. Thank you. And I think that from a tactical perspective, too, it's important to distinguish between interpersonal racism and systemic racism. Mm. So on a personal level, I would love for the whole world to be full of people who are pure of heart and are anti-racist. But from a strategic level, what I actually need is lack of systemic racism. Mm. I can to a certain extent, survive the interpersonal racism. To, so to define those briefly, interpersonal racism is personal malice. It's someone walking up to you and calling you a racial slur, for example. Systemic racism is you're a person of color. You walk into a bank to get a loan. You have excellent credit. You sit down with that person at the bank. They take your application. They're very polite then you find out you didn't get the loan. Nobody called you a bad name, nobody was mean to you, but the white person who walked in after you who was in a worse financial position 
got the loan that they asked for. And I'm not pulling this out of thin air. We have studies that show that people of color, not just black people, but Asian people, other people of color in America who are in the same financial state as white loan applicants are less likely to get loans. That's systemic racism. So when we put policies in place to fight that, I'm not that much concerned if the loan officer goes home and says a racist joke, as long as I get my loan so I can go out and start my business and employ people in a non-racist fashion or buy a home or create wealth for my community, I can live with the interpersonal racism. And so I think it's important from a tactical perspective that our energy be on how systems treat us and not how individuals feel about us. Absolutely. And while people might say that seems a bit cold, sometimes when you're dealing with people in power, they're very like, well, show me the facts. And that interpersonal racism, they're kind of like, well, like, you know, we don't, we don't want to address that. But when you go back to systemic racism, it's really hard to argue with the facts and seem um, knowledgeable, intelligent, and unbiased when people are presenting actual facts and you don't have anything to come back as far as to, your reasons why not to support something. And so I really like that, especially when um, interacting with government and kind of the policies of it. And I think like locally to um, Connecticut here, specifically here in Waterbury, when I think of um, making racism a public health crisis or the Columbus flag, and I think a lot of the conversation was, well, this is how we feel. And the government is always saying, well, show me the numbers. And so he'll put it to a vote. And the numbers, because the population that is affected is so small, is always in the favor of um, the typically the white community. And so I think it's very important, especially when um, black and brown people are often the minority in, in areas and settings, when we are trying to get policy change to really think about the facts and the numbers and to stand true and to stand fast to that. Because again, those that are in power often are like, well, what does the number say? Oh, we don't have, we don't have enough people at the rally. We don't have enough people to bring up, um, uh, be against it. So um, I love that when you're talking about um, combating systemic racism. Thank you. And the number piece is so important and it's also not, disjunctive from the emotional piece. So for example, uh, my sister is a brilliant woman. She has an undergraduate degree from Harvard. She has two postgraduate degrees from Stanford. But I knew that when she and her husband were expecting my toddler nephew, that he was at the same risk of infant mortality, even though she was a black woman with postgraduate degrees as the baby of a white woman with an eighth grade education. And that's because of the stress that racism takes on the body. So we have statistics that can show that racism is a public health crisis, but it's also an emotional thing. I could not, I can't even speak of it. I could not bear it if we had lost my precious nephew. And so we do need to learn how to speak to the head when it comes to racism, how to speak to the heart when it comes to racism, how to use the numbers, how to make systemic racism very real and vivid. And again, it just comes down to being tactical and strategic and recognizing that we need rhetorical strategies when we engage in these conversations. Mm, I love that. Do you think that your professional career 
as a lawyer helps you to be diplomatic, especially when these are emotional and personal issues? I think so, especially being a litigator, because we're trained to appeal to juries, which means our job is to persuade people, not necessarily like-minded people, 12 Mm. random people from the community. And so our job is not to go in and drop the mic and have all the perfect facts and possibly be in the right but yet lose the audience. Our job is to move the needle. And I think that sometimes that can be lost in conversations about anti-racism. There's um, a lot of backlash against the idea of tone policing. And some of it's legitimate. People say, well, don't accuse someone of having an impolitic tone. And that's right. We, We shouldn't ask people not to be angry about things that merit righteous anger. We shouldn't accuse someone of being an angry Black woman when people should be angry about oppression. But at the same time, if we want people to actually listen to us and we want to change their minds, we have to use a tone that doesn't make us functionally inaudible. And so Mm -hmm. there's a difference between what we have the right to feel and what it's tactical to express and in what way it's strategic to express it. I like that. And I like that. And I can feel like some people like, well, it's not fair. I should be able to say what I want to say. And and I've had, you know, people have had to um, curtail themselves in conversations about racism. But I I totally agree with the point of what the burden. Yes, it's unfair that people of color have to present all these facts and they can't just say, well, listen, duh, racism exists. But I think that these are actual steps that people need to have when they're building the skill of being an anti-racist. I think that having these toolkits so that you can speak with people in positions and to your neighbor without losing yourself, losing your decorum, without being disheartened. You know what I mean? Sometimes you can lay out your all of your emotion and be so exhausted and the person still not receive it. And so I think this is a really great way to um, also protect your mental and emotional health and just kind of being very fact-based, having something on hand to be like, these are the facts. You want it, you want it. You don't, I'm, I'm going to keep moving and on to the next person. Thank you. And just coming back to another technique, when we're having these conversations, even if we don't agree with the other perspective, it's important to acknowledge the other perspective because hearing and fairly characterizing someone's point of view earns you rhetorical capital. And when Mm -hmm. you understand someone's argument, then you can make a congruent response to it. Mm -hmm. So one thing I learned when I was in mediation training as a lawyer is using the phrase, so what I hear you saying is, so suppose someone doesn't want to make your workplace more diverse. Mm -hmm. Make sure you understand why it is that they're saying that, because in their minds, it's not because I'm a horrible racist person. There's a a reason you need to get it. So you might say, so what I hear you saying is that while diversity is nice, it doesn't really impact the care that we give to our patients at this clinic. So then once you've heard what the actual issue is, you can come back and cite a source like the George Mason University study that found that black newborns who are plagued by infant mortality, as I discussed, 
are three times more likely to die when cared for by white doctors than by black doctors. Whereas white infants, whether they have white or black doctors, it doesn't affect their rates of infant mortality. So if you understand what the person's saying, you can actually rebut it and come back and say, you know what, diversity isn't just a cosmetic frill. But what they might be saying is, no matter what your skin color is, everyone reads a blood pressure machine the same way. And that's why we don't have to diversify our clinic. Well, if you hear them say that and you acknowledge it, you can say, okay, so what I hear you saying is everybody reads a blood pressure machine the same way, no matter if you're black, white, brown, or purple. But the reason we should affirmatively seek to hire people of color is not because they have some special cultural technique for reading a blood pressure machine, but because people of color have been unfairly denied opportunity in the healthcare field in the past, and justice requires that that be rectified. So you acknowledge what the person said, and then you address what they said, and not your cartoon version of what this evil villain said. I, I love that because... I think it preserves relationship because at the end of the day, we cannot put all the people we don't agree with on a spaceship and send them to Mars. It would be nice. It would be easier, but we can't do that. And some of these people are neighbors, our coworkers. And some of these people are people that, you know, you might be married to someone who agrees very differently than you. And I like these tactics because they preserve relationship. And at the end of the day, we all have to, find out how to coexist with each other. And I think they are good tactics because sometimes people say, well, um, we just can't agree anymore or I'm conservative. They hide behind these labels. And I think these are tactics that allow you to kind of combat that as well and to hear what that person is saying, but also presenting your facts. Oh, absolutely. And that relationship part, I'm so glad she brought that up. I did a webinar just last week with Mark Osler, who is an incredible lawyer, wonderful in the social justice space. This was a webinar for fellowships at Auschwitz for the study of professional ethics. And one thing that's unique about Professor Osler, he's a law professor, is that he's not just a law professor, he's also a preacher. And he opposes the death penalty. And he realized he was going to these anti-death penalty conferences. And everyone who attended the conferences was also against the death penalty. So people would get up and they would make this speech about why the death penalty was wrong. And then everyone who already agreed with them would clap and say, yeah, yeah, it is wrong. And he's saying like, wait, who, whose mind are we changing here? Mm. And so he realized that you know most people who support the death penalty in America are like him. Christian. So he started going to Christian churches and having conversations about the death penalty. And he said before he got to the distinction between himself and his audience, I'm against the death penalty, you're for it. He drew a hoop around them that included himself and his audience. We are all Christians. This is what we have in common. Let's begin the conversation there. And sometimes you can start with what people have in common and just bring them in, start with the relationship and then use the relationship as the foundation. So for example, suppose someone tells you, I don't think race should be considered in college admissions. Well, what you might say is, what I hear you saying, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I hear you saying is that college admissions should be fair. Is that what you're saying? Okay, I agree with that too. But here's why I think that not considering race in college admissions makes it less fair. And 
Here you can pull in another technique that I call taking off the invisibility cloak. So sometimes the structures of racism can be hidden by an invisibility cloak and people aren't aware of them. So then when you remediate racism, it looks like you yourself are being racist. So if people don't understand why race might cause students to have different SAT scores, then when you say let's use race in college admissions, you look like the one being racist. But if you pull off that invisibility cloak, you can say things such as, for example, at the predominantly white private college preparatory school I went to, if a student wasn't getting the scores that he or she wanted or his or her parents wanted on a quiz or an exam or a standardized test, they would just go through the very expensive process of getting a psychologist to say that they needed disability accommodations. And then all of a sudden in their teenage years, they would be declared disabled and granted more time. And the college board and the ACT don't disclose the fact that they got more time to the admissions offices. And so white students are more likely to have what's called a 504 plan named for Section 504 of the United States Rehabilitation Act of 1973 that grants them this extended time on tests than students of any other race. But you don't see that racial head start that they get. And that's just one of very many head starts. So when you pull out that invisibility cloak, you can say, well, the reason we consider race in admissions is because race confers some benefits on white people in admissions. And we have to consider that to make the playing field fair on the back end. And so coming back to we both agree with fairness. We're, we're not in disagreement about that. But let's pull out that invisibility cloak so you can see how I arrive at the idea that considering race is fair and now does it make sense to you? Because we're, we're both coming from the same place. So let's focus on that commonality. I, again, another great point. Um, and I, I like how you put it in reference to what is the commonality? What, you know, in regards to, okay, we both want it to be fair. Because at the end of the day, humans should have like water shelter be safe right if we all agree on that then we can debate how to get there as long as we agree on those fundamental principles and um i feel things have gotten so polarized and i feel like with issues of race um human dignity social justice it's been so politicized so that it's either for or against but at the end of the day it's what is the commonality and how do we make sure everybody succeeds? And so I really like how you discuss that because it's really about bringing people together and not being so polarized. Absolutely. And one thing I go into in my book is the psychology of anti-racism. I think that mm -hmm. if you're going to be an effective anti-racism and use tactics that work, then you under need to understand kind of the neurocognitive processes that mm -hmm. go into prejudice and that go into persuasion. And so one of the psychological errors that people have is thinking that I am motivated by in-group love. You are motivated by out-group hate, if you disagree with me. So how that looks in a racial context is, I say Black Lives Matter because I love my toddler nephew and I don't want him to be assaulted or killed by the police. What you hear is, I hate the police. So right. I'm expressing in-group love. You hear out-group hate. 
Now, if I know that that's what you might hear, I can account for that. I can say, I have policemen in my social circle who take pride in keeping communities safe. And I admire them. When I say Black Lives Matter, I'm not saying I hate the police. What I'm saying, in fact, is that I love the police in my life so much. I want them to be surrounded by colleagues who value human dignity as much as they do. They deserve that. My nephew deserves better than the status quo. My policeman friends deserve better, better than the status quo. So understanding that how polarization works, then you can account for the perception of out-group hate when you express in-group love. Mm, absolutely. Because again, if, if your tactics, if your mannerisms are rooted in love, that's going to preserve that relationship and that's going to help not isolate people. Because I think we've seen what happens when people are isolated um, in reference to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, right? So people feel like I have this right because I'm feeling isolated. I feel like my status quo is being attacked. My norms are being attacked. And, you know, we see what hate gets us. Hate does not get us to a solution. And so, again, it's about how do you protect your mental health when you're fighting for something that you're passionate, you're passionate about, and how do you convey um, what you need and why it's important to you? And again, I, I think um, that love aspect is very important to not letting that hate take root, which it can easily do. And I hear what you're saying echoes of Martin Luther King, who said that hate can't fight hate. Only love can do that. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can drive out darkness. And I think that what you also remind us of is that the purpose of engaging in these conversations with respect for a person's humanity, even if you don't respect their perspective, even if their perspective does not merit respect, even if perhaps the person doesn't merit respect, yet you still grant them that grace, is not just for the benefit of the other person. It's also for you. And that mm -hmm. reminds us that there is a self-care aspect to anti-racist work, that not only is it unhealthy for you to carry around hate, but you have to be very intentional about taking care of yourself as you take on the burden of trying to change the world. You know, we all are familiar with Rosa Parks refusing to give up that seat on her, the bus. We don't discuss how Rosa Parks got ulcers. You know, we are familiar with that image of Elizabeth Eckford looking so stoic as part of the Little Rock Nine. We don't talk about the post-traumatic stress disorder that she suffered for decades after from, you know, being spit and on and assaulted just regularly every day in that school, that her life was beyond that one iconic moment. She just got tortured day in and day out and it took a toll. So if you're going to change the world, recognize that you're an instrument of change and treat yourself with the same care that you would treat a Stradivarius. Take time to meditate, to engage in a spiritual practice, to spend time with your loved ones. Take care of your mental health because that's tactical too. If you burn out, then you can't be any more used to the movement. You can't fight another day. So be sure to take that time and rest and recuperate and then go back into battle. I, I love that. And I'm so glad you have brought up 
um, like Rosa Parks and, and so many um, of the activists had, they died young because of the, the, the multiple health problems that they had, or, you know, they survived, but they were, had again, ulcers and cancers and all these various health problems because it's internal as well, right? When we are dealing with trauma, hate, stress, and mind you, you as a person of color, you do have the stress of discrimination, of being in spaces where you're not welcome, at where sometimes your safety is 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 threatened, and that internalizing all of that um, is why we have such health disparities. Which again is why racism is a public health crisis because the data shows that you know racism and discrimination has a negative impact. And the same thing with activism, all of the internalization of the hate and the stress can begin to eat you on the inside out. And so really, I, I urge everyone listening to let this be a call to action to rest. And I love that so many Black athletes um, like Simone Biles are prioritizing their mental health. And I think us as a Black and Brown community really need to say, okay, I, I need to rest because rest has not been part of our repertoire, but it really, um, I'm glad to see in this new age, we are beginning to prioritize rest, black luxury, things that make us smile, black joy, all these things that are needed to remain whole. Absolutely, as a person of faith, I always go back to Jesus's saying, let the mind think on what is lovely. And you can think of the context in which he was saying that while he himself was a persecuted minority. And so that need for mental health as you are doing social justice work, and even when you are a minority group has been recognized literally for thousands of years. So we need to stop ignoring it. Absolutely, absolutely. And before I ask you a little bit about the writing process, um, again, um, in reference to your book, it was talking about how this book um, is for white people and for people of color. And how important is that? I think sometimes when we talk about race, equality, diversity, um, we like to say, okay, this is a Black issue. Only Black people can, can speak on it. Only Brown people can speak on it. But how important for was it for you in writing this book that it was um, open to both people, for, for persons of color and people um, who are white? So it was very important to me because, again, my emphasis is systemic racism. And the way you counter that is by in, uh, putting in place systemic anti-racism, basically. You put in place structures to counteract that. And systems can be put in place by people of any color. And so I wanted to be a book for people of color, and not just for Black people, for Hispanic people, for Asian people, for Native American people, and other peoples of color, and for white people. The book discusses the issues we all face, because when we look at, for example, how the U.S. Army decided to ban uh, photographs and promotion decisions, because they found that when you don't use photographs, people of color have a fair shot at being promoted. Well, if you want to bring a policy like that to your own workplace, you don't have to be white, you don't have to be a person of color, you just need to know what technique to put in place. And so that's what this book is. When we talk about these things like um, using an I statement or pulling off the invisibility cloak or 
drawing a circle around someone that includes your commonalities before you get to the places of disjunction. Those are things you don't have to be any particular color to use. You know, they're techniques, just like anybody can learn how to hit a baseball and there's, you don't have to be a black person or a white person to learn. This is how you align your knuckles on the bat. For some of the, and certainly there are some times when you will have a particular resonance or perhaps lack of resonance because of your color. And I do discuss that. I talk about how to engage in interracial dialogue, cross-racial dialogue, what to do when one minority group is oppressing another minority group, how you can deploy your white privilege, how if you're a minority, you can speak to white people and help them understand your experience. But most of these techniques you can use no matter who you are. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, listeners, definitely uh, check out the link that is going to be in this episode bio so that you can pre-order. Um, I am very excited to read this because there are so many great nuggets. And so please share a little bit about the writing process. So um, I have just re-fallen in love uh, with writing um, over the last couple of, of months, it's been a self-care for me to do some creative writing. I would love to one day write a book. So I'm selfishly going to ask you a million questions about this. So how was the writing process for you? Like, how did you get started? Well, for me, I thought about the five things that I really wanted to focus on teaching anti-racist. And those were how to address an act of explicit racism, because even though, as I said, most racism is systemic and not interpersonal or explicit, when you think about things like George Floyd's murder that galvanized the world into action, a lot of people's entree point into anti-racist work or activism is explicit racism. So I wanted to start with that. And then I wanted to go to how to discuss and if necessary, debate race effectively. I wanted to have a chapter on systemic racism. I wanted a chapter on reckoning with the past. And then I wanted to answer a question I hear a lot of people asking, which is how do you make change if you're just a regular old person and you don't have a leadership role? And so once I knew what five areas I wanted to speak to, then I really wanted to focus on both the head and the heart. So there are a lot of facts in the book. I point to, you know, this is the psychology of changing people's minds and this is the psychologist who said it. But then I also tell stories from my own life. As I said, I've I'm used to being the only one in the room in pretty much every room that I'm in since the time I was a kindergartner. And so I've had the privilege because of that, of being part of diversifying spaces, whether a K through 12 prep school in the South to Ivy League schools in the Northeast to now um, trying to do my small part to make the field of law more diverse and equitable and inclusive. And so I bring in the stories, I bring in the stats, and then it's just like weaving. You go to your metaphorical loom and weave all those things together. I, I love it. I love it. And did you ever feel stuck while you were writing? Like, where do I go from here? I didn't because I feel like in some ways I've been writing this book my whole life. When I signed with the publisher, I had six months to write it, but that was okay because I've been writing this book for decades. Mm. It sounds like you really took your passion and put it on the page. Thank you. You know, I just really wanted to take all the experiences I've had, all the cool precedents I've seen. Um, I talk about in the book, for example, 
holding office hours, which is something you can do at your workplace. If you have a particular skill and you know that other people maybe don't have that skill or aren't getting the mentoring that they need or because of some sort of racial disparity may not have access to it, then you hold office hours and teach it. So the way this manifested when I was um, a student was at Dartmouth, there were minority students and they would often come to Dartmouth completely brilliant, very accomplished, very hardworking, but from underfunded public schools that just hadn't taught them the academics that Dartmouth expected you to know. So on the African-American and Native American listservs, students would say, hey, Friday from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m., come to my dorm room and I will help you prepare for the physics exam. And that's just a way of saying, you know what, I know because of a racial disparity, you didn't get XYZ. So I'm going to make sure you get it. I don't have to be a dean to make this happen. I can just make sure that I create resources for my community. So in the more adult world, if you are a lawyer and your parents are a lawyer, then your parents will tell you, hey, try and get first chair role on a pro bono case. And that way the partners will see that you know how to litigate and you'll move up through the ranks. Well, as I said, law is one of the widest professions. So if you are a person of color, you are disproportionately likely to be a first generation lawyer. And you may not have someone in your ear telling you that stuff. So you have peers and colleagues who are white and it's like they have these cheat codes. I mean, they're not cheating, but it's like in a, in a, in a video game. Some people know the secrets and the hacks and so they can navigate and other people don't. But if you are in your office and you happen to know, hey, I know uh, what it takes to make partner. I know what's in the unwritten rule book. Then you can have office hours. You can say, you know what? I want to take the summer associates out for a coffee or tea to use the name of your podcast. And I'm going to give them some good career advice. I'm going to make sure that everybody has access to the same knowledge. And you don't even have to say, I'm just going to take the summer associates of color out. You can say, I'm going to do a summer associate event on my own. Everybody come to my house and I'll just make sure everybody, you know, you're white, you're a person of color. Maybe you're a white working class person. You're also the first lawyer in your family. Let's make sure we're all working with the same toolkit. So things like that, that I got from Dartmouth. And I've, I've had so many experiences where wonderful people were doing these innovative things to make the world around them more diverse and and inclusive and equitable. And I wanted to just take all those things and put them in the book. The best practices from my own life, the best practices from research, what data shows is more effective, what data shows we waste time on that doesn't really move the needle on diversity. Mm -hmm. So just to take all those things and put them in one book so that you have what I hope is the art of war for anti-racism. I love that, the art of war of anti-racism. And I, I love that idea of, you know, bringing everybody to the table, right? Because it's not about repeating the same tactics that haven't been helpful, right? It's about making new steps that are inclusive and diverse. And, and I love how you touched on, you know, finding what is your gift? What are you good at in sharing that so that the next generation, so that the next person, so that your neighbor is able to have that same information? Um, when I had uh, Professor Latanya White, who discussed dynastic wealth, that was something she also talked about is a lot of times 
people of color are like the first generation. So we don't have those cheat codes, as you referenced, those, those intricate things that would help to propel your business. So it's a lot of trial and error. And if you would just share that information, if we would get rid of that crab in a bucket mentality, we would all grow and get to the next level and to have sustainable wealth and sustainable growth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can think about, for example, uh, knowledge distribution and not just wealth distribution. I can't tell you how many people I've met from working class backgrounds who think, I can't afford to go to an Ivy League college, mm-hmm. even if I'm qualified for it, because mm-hmm. in my mind, that's a fancy college that's mm-hmm. more expensive. Not realizing that Ivy League colleges are among the wealthiest institutions in the world, so they have the most generous financial aid, that you could probably go to that Ivy League college for free. Whereas if you go to a school that's less selective, you're actually going to be taking out student loans. So mm-hmm. these are things um, that people of color disproportionately don't know but also working class white people. And one thing I wanna emphasize is that when you make the world more racially equitable, you make it better for everyone. So when you put these systems in place, poor white people, working class white people, they benefit from it too. And so when you create these systems where, um, you know, if you say, hey, you know what, in our workplace, we're all attorneys, we know how to get to college, we know how to get to law school, let's go to an underfunded public school and just have a day where we talk about how to apply to college, how to apply to law school, how to pick a college. That's a racial justice move, it's a knowledge distribution move, and it helps everybody. I love it, I I love it. Um, Because the only way we're gonna make it is together. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like um, for now, we are stuck on planet Earth together. Uh, I know we have some people trying to make it <laughs> to space, <laughs> the one percenters, but um, we're all we got. Right. And, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. So we know, for example, that companies that are more diverse are also more profitable. So mm-hmm. that doesn't just benefit people of color. That benefits you if you're a white shareholder. That benefits you if you're a white employee because you're less likely to be laid off. That benefits you if you are a white person of whatever class, because if your pension is invested in that company, when that company succeeds, that gives you a better retirement. And so we have to stop thinking of the zero sum game mm-hmm. in which if people of color succeed, it means white people are losing something. Actually, when people of color succeed, that is a huge stimulus plan to white people. If people of color got reparations, the economy would be better for white people. And I think another tactic is we have to be sure to talk about anti-racism in those terms. We have to make sure people understand this is not just about me as a person of color and mine. This will materially benefit you. And although it's great to appeal to people's altruism and say, I know that uh, you come from only the noblest perspective and are perfectly selfless and are just totally invested in my liberation. It's also strategic to appeal to people's self-interest and say, hey, you know what? When I get my reparations check, your economic prospects are going to be better. That works too. Absolutely, because we're going to pour into businesses and it's local businesses and like it's just going to stimulate great growth which is what we saw with the stimulus check it stimulated growth so money in money out right i mean we know for example that black owned businesses 
do wonders for black employment. So say um, a jurisdiction were to make a policy to support black owned businesses. Well, if a black person is being lifted out of poverty, if a black person who would have otherwise been on welfare has a job, if a black person who lacking employment prospects would have otherwise committed a crime and victimized you or would have gone to prison and cost you tax money, then you as a non-Black person, and we could say as a non-Hispanic person, as a non-Native person, as a non-Asian person, are benefiting from the fact that that jurisdiction invested in those businesses of color. Absolutely. Um, Shannon, please do not be a stranger to Coffee and Combos. This has been absolutely wonderful and before i ask you my final question please if there was anything you wanted to leave listeners with what would that be you know there is an academic named carol dweck who speaks of having a growth mindset she says that when people have fixed mindsets they think i either I'm good at math or I'm not good at math. I'm good at sports or I'm not good at sports. But when they have a growth mindset, they realize I can become good at math. I can become good at sports. And I think that we need to think about anti-racism in the same way. Sometimes we think I'm an activist or I'm not an activist. I'm woke or I'm not woke. I one of those people protesting in the streets or I'm not. But really anti-racist is something you don't have to feel that you are it's something that you can become so let's have a growth mindset and i invite everyone no matter what their color no matter what their background to be an anti-racist to grow into that so that we can all benefit as a society absolutely i i love it i love it i love it i love it i love i think sometimes when we talk about race people get defensive. They get like, oh my goodness, this is just another liberal, blah, 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 blah. Whatever kind of negative stereotype their mind goes with. But I I love that the conversation and the book is from a place of love, a place of inclusion, a place that says, hey, no matter what you look like, no matter who you are, I'm just here to build that skill. This is a skill we all need to learn. So come to the table, come to the table with your doubts, come to the table with your your perceptions and we're gonna help you build that skill. And so um, congratulations again. Thank you for being part of the Coffee and Combo family. And I'm gonna ask you my last question, which is what is in your cup? And this is where I ask my listeners and my guests, what are three things that you need to get you through your day and your week? And Shannon, while you are thinking about your answer, I will give you mine. Well, from this conversation, I think I want to add diplomacy to my cup. Um, I can be passionate and sometimes maybe a little stubborn, especially in, in when in terms of equality and inclusion and advocacy. So to have a little bit more diplomacy, um, especially since um, this season I'm, I'm running for political office and often running, I'm running with some people that might not have the same views as me. And so I don't want to shut down and I don't want to shut them down. So I, I want to have diplomacy in my cup. Um, I want to have faith in my cup because faith is going to help you see the end goal and see what it's going to be like. It's also going to keep you encouraged during those days and also self-care. Like we talked about, we don't often pair advocacy with self-care enough, but we know the ramifications. We know the internal struggles and health disparities that happens when we internalize and don't make ourselves a priority. 
And so I want to be better at making myself a priority and prioritizing my rest. So I'm adding diplomacy. Um, I'm adding self-care and I'm adding faith to my cup. And so Shannon, what about you? Oh, what a wonderful reflective <laughs> practice to ask yourself what's in your cup and also to make sure that your cup is not empty. Mm-hmm. So I would share with you as one thing in my cup, faith. Uh, that comes from my Christian faith. It comes from my interfaith relationships. I'm very good friends with a rabbi who I correspond back and forth with, and I love to get his perspective on uh, issues from someone outside of my tradition. I have another friend who's Muslim who I've celebrated Ramadan with, and I love to get her perspective on things. So I think faith and the wisdom of our very traditions, as well as my own tradition, is one thing that's in my cup. Another thing that's in my cup is yoga, which is another spiritual practice, although it has a physical dimension. I had the privilege of being the student friend and mentee of Tao Porshan Lynch, who was in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the oldest yoga teacher. When she passed a few days after she taught us her final yoga class, she was 101 and a half. Oh, God bless her. And she was an anti-racist activist. Uh, She, at the time of her death, was one of the few, until her death, was one of the few people alive who had marched with both Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And so uh, her teachings and her yoga have been a wonderful self-care tool as I pursue anti-racist work. And then another thing in my cup is just the love of my friends and family. There's a proverb that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. And I'm so blessed to have others supporting me on this journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Beautiful cup. Beautiful, beautiful cup. And I love how you mentioned about having um, different faiths in your lifestyle because Again, I think when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we get afraid that if we have diversity and inclusion, it's somehow going to diminish our faith or diminish something in us. It's going to take something away, but it only helps to enrich what you already know and enrich your convictions. And so thank you for being an advocate. I cannot wait until your book comes out. Listeners, please follow Shannon on social media, purchase her book. All that information will be in the bio. And Shannon, take care, be well, and please do not be a stranger to Coffee and Combos. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so humbled to have this conversation with you. And just thank you for the space that you create so that these kinds of dialogues can occur.